Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. This week, I have a really great conversation with Jeff Maynaugh. And you might be thinking, who's Jeff Maynaugh? And I think you might have been thinking, who are all the other guests that you've had on this podcast? You've never talked about them before you started the show. And you wouldn't be alone because that was brought to my attention by a good friend of mine. And I am taking his advice and doing a bit of an intro before the show kicks off. Originally, when I was thinking about doing the show, I just wanted it to be like you're a fly on the wall overhearing a conversation between me and whoever the guest of the show is. And now that I've done it for a few episodes and put it out there, I think it probably makes sense to use this as an opportunity before the show actually begins to, number one, let you know who they are, and potentially, number two, if there is any kind of follow-up that I need to do from previous episodes. So consider this the very first one. Um, This is a little bit of extra work and more timely, maybe right before the episode goes out, because I do record these quite often in advance. Uh, and uh, hopefully, you know, if you like it, give me some feedback. If you don't like it, give me feedback about that too. All right, so now that that little business piece is over with, let's talk about Jeff. Jeff Maynaugh, first and foremost, he's a writer, and if you go to jeffmaynaugh.com and link in the show notes so that you can check out more of what he's up to, uh, has a great little description, so I'm not going to try to come up with my own. I'm going to read the first couple short paragraphs that he has on his own site, basically telling you who he is and what he's all about. So I'm going to do that first. Jeff Maynard is a Los Angeles-based freelance writer and the author of A Burglar's Guide to the City on the relationship between crime and architecture. A Burglar's Guide to the City was a New York Times bestseller for two months and in 2016 was optioned for television by CBS Studios, According to Amazon.com, it was one of their, quote, best books of 2016. Maynard regularly covers issues related to cities, design, crime, infrastructure, technology, and more from the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, The Guardian, New Scientist, Cabinet Magazine, The Daily Beast, Wired, Wired UK, and many other publications. So I think with that quick description, you immediately can understand why I wanted to talk to Jeff. And this is the first time I've ever talked to Jeff in person, uh, not actually in person, over Skype, because we are in quarantine times right now. And uh, it was a fantastic conversation. We talked about geology, music, architecture, so many things. It was all over the place. As you kind of got from that description on the website, he's got his fingers in all kinds of pies all over the place. And I would love to have more conversations with him because there are so many rabbit holes that we could go down, and I just think that would be really fun. So you can also see Jeff's work on his blog, which at the time of this recording, he had not updated in a while. He's been very deep in writing his newest book that's coming out in spring of 2021 on quarantine, which coincidentally enough, uh, we talk a little bit about during the show, that was a topic of interest for him for several years now. And it's uh, only become even more of a thing now that everybody's in basically a type of a quarantine during COVID-19 time. So since this conversation that Jeff and I had, he's actually been on quite a roll on his blog, which is buildingblog.com. That's B-L-D-G-B-L-O-G.com building blog. And uh, he's got a few great posts, but I also love following him on Twitter and Instagram where he has a little bit of a visual flair to the types of things that he posts. And I I love seeing what he comes up with and the connections that he makes and the dots that he connects. I, I really feel a little bit of a kindred spirit with him. As I say in the episode, I think he's a little bit X-Files and a little bit 99% invisible. And I think you'll agree. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jeff Maynard. Jeff Maynard, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you. Thanks. It's great to be on. Yeah. So uh, long time uh, lurker, first time caller here. Uh, I've been following your stuff for a long time online, uh, whether that's Twitter, Instagram, Instagram, not Instagram. (laughs) Um, new service maybe that's a new topic yeah Yeah. Uh, and and obviously your your blog building blog so since this is the first time we've ever actually talked besides just like 
couple little messages here and there over the years. Um, what are you all about? Uh, that's actually a, quite a good question. <laughs> uh, I think, um, yeah, I mean, the parameters of that query, I think, are something that one can spend an entire lifetime thinking about. But um, I think that what really kind of brought at least this conversation together, um, I think, is, yeah, you know, my writing about architecture and design over the last 15 or 16 years. Uh, in fact, um, I can't remember the exact date. I think it's July 6th. Uh, just coming up oh, about a week from now is actually the six, 16th anniversary of, of when I started Building Block. Wow. So I've been doing this for, for quite a long time. And, and um, yeah, I guess, you know, I've, I've, I've always been attracted to architecture just because it's a, an incredibly multidimensional topic that allows you to get into so many other things immediately and, and right away. The minute you start to look into why our cities look the way they do or how a building got to be where it is or who designed that building and what led them to it. Um, you know, the politics, the history, um, even the philosophy that surrounds individual works of architecture and acts of urban design, I think it's just something that's so incredibly interesting to explore. And then obviously architecture is also this thing that you stumble onto in almost immediately. If you, you know, watch a science fiction film or read a horror novel or look into news reports about, you know, war and, and on the other side of the world and how it's being uh, waged, the kinds of things that happen, all of these things that start touching on the built environment in a really interesting and way that you can track across different different fields and topics. And I think it's that, that kind of thing that I've always tried to do with my architecture writing, you know, really kind of track down those spatial themes, tie things back to the built environment or to the landscape. And that touches on everything from geology to, as I mentioned, science fiction to the avant-garde and then just to straight up architecture itself. That's awesome. I mean, I, that's one of the, I think that you're a little bit like X-Files and a little bit 99% invisible, right? Where it's like, you, you're kind of looking for the weird stuff that most people don't pay attention to in, in the architectural realm, at least. And, and I feel like that, like, that's really the interesting stuff to look at. I thought about this kind of after I had contacted you and I, I've mentioned it to you before, but there's this show on Amazon Prime called Tales from the Loop. Yeah. And I w I've been fascinated by it. It's it's a really well done like series. And there's so much visually going on in that that they aren't necessarily talking about. And that's what I kind of notice when I look at the stuff or read the stuff that you're posting is that there's kind of this common thread that it's like, have you ever looked at it this way or have you ever looked over here or I can imagine kind of what that, what that might be like for you is when you're kind of out searching for something to write about, or I, I'm not sure how that process works for you, but I can imagine like there's a lot of Google earth involved. There's a lot of like digital tools kind of out there. You're kind of like Sherlocking around looking for stuff that looks interesting and finding more and more out about it until you actually kind of hit on something where you can maybe tie it into other aspects of other things that you've seen or talked about? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that's part of it. I mean, some of it is really just kind of um, an unwitting realization that, hey, this reminds me of that, you know, so there'll be a scene yeah. in a movie and that reminds me of something I read in an architecture book or the other way around. I'll see a work of architecture and that reminds me of something that, uh, you know, was in a video game or that I remember reading about as a kid in a in a novel or a Greek mythology or, you know, these things where I just think, wow, those two things are similar in a way that is exciting. And I'd love to write about those. Um, and then also, you know, I mean, sometimes it even just comes out of the writing itself. You know, I'll, I'll see something that catches my eye, whether it's a story or an image or a new project. And I will think to myself, oh, like A reminds me of B. And that's what I'll set out to write. But in the act of writing, you then realize maybe there's just a little phrase or you think to yourself, oh, I'll link out to this thing, you know, so that people know what I'm talking about. Like whether it's something as simple as a Wikipedia page or it's an article mm. in the New York Times or whatever it might be. But in the act of putting the post together, suddenly you remember, oh, it's also like C and it's kind of like D. And if you put all these together, you might get something like E or F, you know, and then that's where you start getting into, <laughs> or at least for me, that's when I start getting into the kind of what if scenarios that can be hit or miss uh, on building blog, but you know, the, the, you know, what would happen if we took this thing and extended it into the future or what would happen if we took this thing and we put it into a totally different context? You know, I think that that's for me, just the thing that can be really exciting about writing in general, not just writing about architecture, but the very active writing, um, you know, for, for other people, it might be sketching, it might be modeling in an architectural soft mm -hmm. uh, program. Um, but for me, it's that, when you start realizing, okay, okay, this is going to, you know, this is going to lead to that, which could lead to this. And then it might be this, if we put it in a different scenario, um, that kind of stuff is just really exciting for me. 
that whole process to me is fascinating because like as a designer, I've gone through that many, many times where it's like, it's kind of like Stephen Pressfield writes about this in, in his work too, where he talks about just showing up and doing the work, sure. right? He has a book called just do the work or it's called do the work. And, uh, and basically that's how you're, how you become a professional at doing something is just by showing up and doing it day after day after day. And I, I've, I've experienced that myself, like laying out, you know, floor plan or whatever for a building and you just can't solve it. And then you just can't solve it. And then you just can't solve it. And then like, like you said, you just keep noodling with it. You keep trying different things, different permutations of, of adjacencies or whatever those things are. Mm. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh wait, there's something here. And, and then when you solve it, Holy crap. That's so satisfying. Right. It's like, it's that moment where you're like, I'm so glad I spent the time doing this because now I've actually cracked this. I could have cracked it five other ways and they would have been terrible compared to this. But because you actually put in the time to just keep showing up and keep trying until it got to that magic moment when it just works is so satisfying. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Do you feel like that happens a lot with the type of stuff that you're kind of chasing after because there are so many kind of unintended threads that tend to get linked together between these different things? I mean, it's a uh, it's, it's, it's a combination, I, I guess I'd say. I mean, because there are times where I feel that, you know, once you really get into a groove with writing and you're prolific and posting quite often, you start to really feel when something is going to open up into that next level of like, okay, this is the this is this new scenario or this new what if question or the this new plot or storyline that might come out of the material I'm working with. Um, and so the, the sheer repetitive act of writing daily or at the very least every other day to, to focus on this kind of stuff kind of gets that technique down, I guess you could say. Um, but I guess I'd say mm-hmm. as well I, on the exact opposite path, I find that if you take time off like a week, but then when you sit down again and go back to it, um, you can sometimes have that feeling of, um, you know, your you like your body responds to doing something again for the first time in a while, and you're actually yeah. maybe even a little bit better because you took the time off. You know, you maybe you've gotten you've <laughs> yeah. it's you've you've forgotten the bad habits, and it's the good ones that have stuck around. And so, I, I find that writing yeah. can be a mix of those two approaches. You know, getting things down, doing it every day. So it's almost like you know, shooting baskets in in, in basketball, just to make sure that like, can you actually do it? Like, how is your aim? How is your accuracy? But then you take time off, and I find that with writing, it can do the same thing. Like it feels so unbelievably good to be writing again. It feels that you're in the midst of like a very fluent conversation, or that you're revisiting an idea from a new point of view, and then it really just kind of flows and, st- and comes out. And I think that that's actually just one of the beauty. Um, you know, one of the things I love so much about writing is that it's a skill or a thing to have, and I think that it, it allows you to metabolize experiences that you've had or things you've read or something someone has told you, you know, it's this, it's this incredible ability to digest, digest the world and turn it into something that you can actually use like the energy of it or the, or the, the nutrition, I guess you could say of, of experience really kind of comes through and writing is a great way to, to, to chew with that and, and make it yours. I had this recent experience where I, because of the whole COVID-19 stuff and the, all the gyms being closed down, like I don't go to a, fitness gym but i go to a rock climbing gym quite often nice. because you know on lunch at work or whatever um with the kids after work and the obviously closed down for the longest time and so i just was focusing on the hangboard at my house right so not doing all of the movement and not worrying about accomplishing a certain problem set or whatever just focusing on kind of like finger strength right just really focusing on this one little aspect of rock climbing mm-hmm. And then the gym just recently reopened. And like you said, like you get back into it, you kind of have a different perspective and it just feels so good to move again, to move the body again in those ways that I was used to before. And it was like, it never left. And I hadn't been doing it for months now, except for the finger strength stuff. That's it. But man, like such a, it felt so awesome. It was like re-energizing in a much bigger way than it ever had been before that yeah totally yeah i can see oh it's funny um you know i, I was i, I was going to mention this anecdote a couple of minutes ago but it seems even more relevant now um there was a and at first it will sound totally uh, uh you know out of the blue but, but uh, ages ago when my brother and i were sort of just fresh out of college and spent some time backpacking together around ireland and and the uk um, we ended up at this little random uh, jazz festival in West Ireland, and you know it, it, we were backpackers, so we could change our schedule. And we ended up sort of camping out in town at this at this youth hostel and and going to every night of this jazz fest. Um, but what was interesting is there was this one particular musician 
who, I'll be honest and say his approach to jazz is not necessarily the jazz I would want to listen to, but nevertheless was an incredibly charismatic and exciting speaker. Um, but it was this guy named Bobby Watson. And um, he gave the advice to people in the audience, you know, if you want to get up to the point of, you know, being an extremely fluent um, saxophone player, as he was, that, you know, you have to be almost eccentric in your practicing uh, routine. And so he was saying that, you know, when he was young, what he would do is basically lock himself in his apartment and he would just play the scale C over and over again. And that's just what, what he would do. He would just practice C and he'd do that for, you know, days, if not weeks at a time. And that, you know, what it meant, you know, almost to, in, in a in a high, highly specialized skill, skill kind of way was that, you know, this was something he was unbelievably good at. But it also meant that, you know, when he then was able to play an entire songs or, or actually play with other players and, and um, you know, experience the freedom of moving away from that and playing things other than C, you know, it was just so exciting and, and you know, almost like a bird taking flight. Um, but I've always thought about that, that, you know, that like if you can just take one thing and do it incredibly well and then move on to the next thing and do that incredibly well, you know, those kinds of skills, whether it's just like the, yeah, the hangboard and climbing or it's shooting three pointers if you're a basketball player or it's, you know, just writing really quick takes on newspaper articles. You know, if there's just something that you can do and do it very often and do it very quickly and fluently, those kinds of skills show up in other scenarios or, or contexts later, you know, when you're writing a longer piece, like an essay or a book, or maybe if you're designing an entire house, you know, you're, you may be very good at floor plans, but now you have a way to experiment in, in, in a different way of notation or that kind of thing. It's a tricky thing because it kind of brings to mind the idea of generalist versus specialist, you know, it's, and it's like, I, I've felt like I've always been more of a generalist and I don't, I don't know where you kind of fall in that segment, but it's like, being able to connect the dots of a lot of different things or maybe not being able to do a lot of things extremely well, but good enough so that you actually can accomplish something that is a lot more well-rounded than somebody who strictly is so specific in their skill set. Where do you fall on that spectrum? So it's an interesting differentiation. Um, I guess I would say, contrary to the implications of my previous uh, answer and anecdote, um, I, I would definitely say I'm a generalist. But I think that it's within that, though, that, you know, developing these individual skills and making sure you're very good at those. You know, it's like to use another physical metaphor. It's it's almost like, you know, if you're doing yoga or Pilates or that kind of thing, you know, it's a, it's a very specific mm -hmm. movement that you're meant to do very well and very precisely. Mm -hmm. But then its overall effect with the other very specific movements that you've learned is to have like a full body health or flexibility that you right. wouldn't have if you right. just sort of if you didn't focus on those very minute individual particulars. And so for me, I think my overall approach is definitely generalism. But I think that what you know, what I like to do is have very many different things on, you know, the, uh, the stovetop at any, any moment. So I'm reading books in archaeology or in a, a novel or I'm reading about architectural history or about quarantine or whatever it might be. But to, to choose those individual silos within that kind of general field and then really go into them deeply. And so I think that that's what's exciting for me as well. It feels like you're really going down a rabbit hole to keep throwing out metaphors here, um, you know, where, where you, you, you find rabbit holes in different fields and you can go into them. But I think that you can't necessarily find those rabbit holes unless you're a generalist and you just sort of get stuck in your own, almost like a stuck in your own silo if you, if you don't have that general approach. So I guess I'd say that if that makes sense, that that, that, that would be how I would look at it. You know, have a general approach to life yeah. and have very many interests, but be prepared to dive into each one um, very deeply and at, at length. Yeah, I I think that's what what I notice a lot about your work, and I find similar to how I think, which is that curiosity is ignited by the movement between the different things, right? So it's like you you kind of get tired of doing one thing and you want to do something else, and but there's so many things on the table, it's kind of hard to choose, and so like you just take the opportunities that come, and or maybe you can pick, you know, you have the luxury of picking, um, and and I feel like. To me, as you know, I don't, you know, you, you hear different words attached to this, like Renaissance man or polymath or whatever. And I feel like, yeah, I want to do it all. I actually want to live like five lifetimes at the same time, mm. right? I don't want to just focus in on one thing. And I think that that intense curiosity that I have and that I can kind of see is like the common thread in your work, which is just like this intense curiosity about all these different things. And then you figure out ways to tie them together. I think that's a very interesting combination. And that's to me, like what gives your blog a sound, right? Like if I were to kind of equate it back to music, like Led Zeppelin had a sound, mm. right? 
and and there's other bands like I was in a band and nice. like no two songs sounded the same, right? Uh. <laughs> so I always thought that was an interesting kind of observation that somebody had. They're like, so what's your sound? And it's like, well, we don't have a sound like Led Zeppelin has a sound. And so I, I, I kind of look at your work and I kind of do sense that there is a sound there. Do you feel like that? Yeah, I mean, I know, I know exactly what you mean. And, and, I, and I would say both for, for, for good and bad, I'd say that I, I, I do think that. I mean, I think that there's a, you can recognize a building blog post, you know, if you put it next to, a, you know, a, mm-hmm. other architecture writing or other architecture blogs or even writing maybe in a totally different field. Um, you know, I feel like there's a, an aspect to building blog that is, is recognizable and, and can be picked up on. And I think of course, obviously that's good and bad. I mean, I think that on the, on the good side, it means that perhaps I have found my voice or, um, you know, there is a consistency to approach or that kind of thing. Um, you know, the bad side is I, I, you know, people who are like, Oh God, here's that building blog thing again, you know, where you have to start acting or sorry, start asking what if questions or, you know, you have to mention Archigram and, and JG Ballard or you know whatever it might be, you know, there's a certain mm. formulaicness to it that I think some people might ob- object to, but I do think that there's a sound to it in, in that approach. Yeah. I kind of think it's a little visual too, right? I like, I see your covers to your books. I see the, the types of images that you present, like from the point of view or, you know, maybe the grayscale. I don't know. Like, there, there's something about it that's like a language that you've developed. Yeah, I think it's hard to hide one's tastes or proclivities. You know, they, they, they come out. So I think, yeah, if, or at least for me, you know, that uh, eventually the, yeah, the same kinds of images are the kinds of things that I'll be attracted to. Or the, I mean, I, ironically, you know, I have, I don't have too much say in the design of the covers of my books, but nevertheless, you know, there is a kind of consistency that is developing. I think when, when a graphic designer sees previous books I've been connected to. And then makes the next one, you know, a, a, a kind of theme is coming out. Yeah, definitely. So what are you interested in right now? Like what, what's the stuff that's really got your curiosity? Uh, I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, and obviously it's a, a bunch of stuff. I, I think um, easily the thing that's most front of mind is this book that my wife and I have been writing for a couple of years now. And um, ironically, it's late. So it should have been done already and actually should have been out in bookstores. And I'm actually glad it isn't. Um, but it's actually a book about the history and future of quarantine. And so mm. with everything going on with the coronavirus and the global lockdown, which is, I guess, no longer global, but, you know, is now still ongoing here in the U.S. where the where the outbreak is spiking at the moment um, here at the end of mm-hmm. end of June. Um that book seems weirdly timely. And so it's actually been really interesting to be finishing it up in, in a state of lockdown and to be able to ex- experience, uh, you know, a, a, a quarantine, either literally or metaphorically. How did that happen? How did, how did you get into like writing a book about quarantine, obviously, before this thing happened? If you go way back, um, it was all the way back in 2009, when uh, just a couple random things came together. So I was, I happened to be reading The Plague by Albert Camus. And then my wife and I were down in Sydney, Australia for a short-term teaching gig. And one of the things that we noticed was that there was this uh, old quarantine hospital outside of Sydney, uh, out on the bay, and this really beautiful peninsula overlooking the, the, the bay coming in from the Pacific Ocean. And it used to be a quarantine station, but was now this luxury hotel. <laughs> and so between reading The Plague, which was all about, you know, a city being shut down in a time of bubonic plague and what happens to people when they, you know, when a city becomes a prison um, and already mm. thinking about that from an architectural point of view, like, OK, what does quarantine do to architecture? What does quarantine do to the limit of a city or the walls of a city mm-hmm. or to a gate? You know, suddenly something that seemed to be oriented toward keeping things out is now about keeping things in. And so, mm-hmm. and then noticing the fact that there was this former quarantine station on an incredibly beautiful peninsula that was now a luxury hotel, like, well, what was that all about? You know, what, why did quarantine disappear? Why is this no longer a quarantine station? Why don't we quarantine? And that kind of led into, um, I mean, this, is a, this, this, this risks being a very long answer. So the, the shorter version is that that led into a, a, a design workshop that my wife and I put together, and that, that which led to an exhibition at Storefront for Art and Architecture in New York. Um, and it was called Landscapes of Quarantine. And so the idea was to look at quarantine through a lot of the lenses that we've already talked about in this conversation. So we had like a graphic designer, um, we had a graphic novelist, we had architects, we had a sound designer, we had artists, um, architects, if I didn't already say that, a photographer, um, a set designer who went on to win a MacArthur uh, Award and, you know, a bunch of people in the in this exhibition all specifically approaching quarantine as a spatial wow 
or narrative problem. You know, what does quarantine do in your discipline? If you're a novelist, what is quarantine going to do to your story? Or if you're an architect, what does quarantine do? So in any case, the exhibition was in 2010. And then um, I guess I just say that, yeah, we just sort of never really stopped thinking about it. You know, it's once you really get quarantine on the brain, it's it's hard not to see it everywhere. Um, you know, you'll get news reports of an animal disease where horses are being quarantined on a, on a farm or, um, you know, it often happens sort of below the radar, but, you know, plants are, are often quarantined so that, you know, there can be zones within a city where you're not allowed to take certain kinds of plants because there's a fear that they will spread pests like uh, mm-hmm. uh, an emerald ash borer infestation or, or that kind of thing. And then after Burglar's Guide to the City came out, I was thinking about what I might want to do for my next book. And, you know, uh, as I mentioned, we just never really stopped thinking about quarantine. And so we decided that we would do a quarantine book. And um, yeah, and that's we we started reporting it and traveling for it back in 2016. And um, and now we're, we're finishing it up and it'll be out in the spring of 2021. But yeah, the idea is to look at quarantine all the way back to when it was invented. So the actual origins of quarantine as a defined practice, and then to look at the future of quarantine. And I guess I'd say one of the reasons why I'm glad we didn't finish the book is that a lot of the stuff in our original draft of the book that was the future of quarantine um, has effectively yeah. happened. So, you know, we've actually seen a lot of the technologies that we were talking about, you know, come into existence with, you know, drones warning people to go home or QR codes to get onto the subway or thermal scans to get into restaurants. You know, all the things that seemed like the future of quarantine are now the recent past of quarantine. So it's been a really interesting process to see that happen. I can imagine. It's like, have you guys had to kind of go back and, and modify what you've done because of this or have you definitely. pushed even further out? Yeah, I'd say both. I mean, I think that we definitely went back and changed some stuff. So the future of quarantine, as I mentioned, is now in our book, at least is now a little bit different because we've seen much of it. Yeah. Um, we changed the title because uh, ironically, the the title of the book that we sold it under was The Coming Quarantine. Um, so mm-hmm. the idea was that there is going to be a quarantine in the in the future that we will all experience because of the emergence of new diseases and how fast things travel around the world with air travel. And so there was this coming quarantine that we imagined. Um, so now it's no longer called the, the coming quarantine. So we changed that. Um, and then, of course, we rearranged some stuff as well, um, just because there are aspects of the topic that need less explanation now. And so yeah. it's been some editing and changing just to make sure it's mm-hmm. clear that we're talking to an audience now that has very likely experienced quarantine, if not just simply seen it in the news. How how interesting, because like, you know, Burglar's Guide to the City, I'm sure was was mostly about infrastructure that already existed, right? Mm-hmm. So so this is much more like future casting in, in a sense. I'm sure you have a, quite a bit of it that's about historical kind of data and things that have happened that would lead to a hypothesis of X. But now you're pushing, I would imagine, out even further since you've actually seen a lot of the things that you guys talked about come true. You know that that just goes further the next time. So have you started to kind of do even more future casting at this point? Yeah. And it's a combination, I think, of future casting quarantine itself, you know, imagining what Mm -hmm. what quarantine will be like five years from now or what technologies will become wrapped up in quarantine or, or used to implement quarantine. But it's also about trying to guess what aspects of the current quarantine will stick around. And so if you actually look at the past of quarantine, often things that were implemented, such as health passports that would prove that you were not infected so that you could go from one city to the next, things like that stuck around and became permanent. Um, in that case, you know, mm-hmm. what we now refer to as the passport actually has right. this, this sort of overlooked medical history. And, wow. you know, even the the League of Nations that eventually led to the United Nations, even the League of Nations had a sort of a medical slash geopolitical quarantine background. And so what's interesting about quarantine is that it's kind of a laboratory for governments to and medical professionals to test out different technologies of control and tracking and testing and that kind of thing. And then very often right. those technologies of tracking and testing or those architectural innovations, um, they often stick around and they become permanent. And so the question would yeah. be, what if, what are we experiencing now in a state of quarantine that appears to be temporary that, in fact, a year from now, we'll just take for granted as just being another infrastructure? Um, you know, mm. for example, you know, we're, we're looking at things like changing the design of restaurants so that people can eat outside. Yeah. Um, or we're looking at the, you know, even just the, the tape interventions inside grocery stores where, you know, we're putting lines on the right. ground to, to guide people around almost like in dance choreography or, or dance notations so that people know how to avoid one another um, and then check out without violating social distancing. 
um, you know, is that going to lead to permanent architectural change so that, you know, two years from now, a grocery store, you won't even realize it, but you're, you're in the quarantine version. You, it just doesn't feel like it because there isn't an active outbreak. Um, I think those kinds of questions will be incredibly fascinating to see how they, how they play out. Yeah, I think one of the interesting kind of aha moments for me is how the pandemic basically just brought to the surface or just put on everybody's radar what was already extremely broken. Yeah. And I think that has to do with stuff out in society and also just the way that businesses are run. Um, And it gives us this incredible opportunity to say, why have we done it like this for so long? Right. Mm -hmm. And you look at the way that classrooms work or school scheduling works or lunches work or so many different things, right? There's, there's so many things where it's like, we could rethink all of this um, because we don't have to maintain this framework that we've had for so many decades or even longer, right? That that's super interesting to me. And I think architecturally that has much bigger implications because buildings are not the easiest thing to change. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they're meant to last, you know, I I would say here, they're meant to last about 50 years. Um, And so that's, you know, that's a long time. That's longer than most people think that, you know, I don't think people generally think about that to begin with. And you're talking about like mechanical systems and the way that the building basically, you know, what's the building's nervous system? What's the building circulation system? What's the building, you know, there's all these different kind of analogous systems to human bodies inside of buildings as well. And those are incredibly difficult to change mm-hmm. in the future, right? Probably. So um, I think that all, all that stuff is super interesting. And that our firm's definitely thinking about a lot of that stuff and thinking about how, like, because we mainly deal in the public sector, right? Schools, hospitals, um, civic work, stuff like that. I mean, where you're dealing with users who could be a different set every day, like in the case of like, you know, a fire station or a police station or a, a courthouse um, versus a school, where you've got, you know, a set schedule and like, there's so many things that have to change about how all of these things operate on a day-to-day basis. And who does that? Yeah. A lot of times the owner has no clue what to do and they're looking for help. They're looking for advice. Well, no, it's true. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the, the question of who will do this, I think is, well, I mean, not only is that one of the perennial political questions, you know, is it us or mm-hmm. is it them? You know, is will government do it or, or will we do it? Um, you know, depending on your political inclinations, th- those, are, those are very different answers. But I do think that that's one of the things that has opened up this space for architects to imagine what sorts of roles they might be able to t- take on in thinking about these questions, you know, that are so many yeah. of them are spatial, or at the very least, they are technical in the building systems uh, vision. I mean, if you, r- r- you may or may not recall that I think it was in Maybe mid-March, um, there was a, a temporarily viral video of a gentleman from the Army Corps of Engineers who was giving a press conference about, um, you know, the quote-unquote simple way that the Army Corps of Engineers would come in and turn a hotel into a quarantine facility. And, you know, it was this sort of masterclass in one, just being very specific, um, but also it was, uh, you know, almost everything came down to HVAC and isolating the air handling systems from one room to the next, um, you know, making sure that there was flow from... Uh, inside to outside and that you know you couldn't give the infection if you had it to the people in the room next door or even people outside in the hall and you know what it boiled down to is basically you know i mean either you know an architectural engineer firm that has expertise in hvac or you know if you want to look at it even more blue collar than that you know a, a, a kind of sufficiently ambitious air conditioning firm you know, suddenly had national if not international importance you know where they could step up the plate yeah. and change um, uh, an econo lodge into a quarantine facility or your house into a medical ward. And it really is just through these weirdly simple changes like in plumbing isolation or in HVAC or in sealing the doors to the outside, you know, and, and, a, and these kinds of retrofits become epidemiologically important and they are also mm-hmm. architectural. And I think that aspect of it is, is really interesting as well. And it's really no wonder that within the architecture world, there was a lot of enthusiasm for stepping up and finding a way that that architects could be useful, whether it was 3D printing personal protective equipment, or it was actually coming yeah. up with you know new kinds of building interiors or new ways to service those building interiors to make them safe against disease. Yeah. And where I see architects providing an extreme value would be like, number one, understanding that that landscape, but then applying it at like the policy level, right? Like actually getting involved in the shaping of our cities and our 
living environments so that it, it moves the needle forward because there's so many times where it is like, oh, I thought you were going to do that, you know, and they're yep. looking over their shoulder and it's very much like a, a much more reactive state to be in. I think that there's a huge opportunity to actually push things forward from a, a policy and an agency level with the incredible depth of information that architects and engineers and the whole AEC industry, you know, builders understand about that stuff to help make those decisions and make things safer for everybody moving forward. There, there's just so much opportunity there. I don't, I don't understand how you could turn a blind eye to that and just, and just wait around for, I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking about, you know, when, when you're talking about changing plumbing and HVAC, like you're talking about ripping stuff apart. Or you're talking about adding it on in addition to, right? Mm-hmm. And just having it come in from the outside. And then I start to think about the imagery that that starts to paint in my head of these cities that are, you know, everything's built on top of each other and it's not about how it looks at all, yeah. which is, you know, what architects tend to care about more than most people. Yeah. And then like, okay, so if that doesn't matter anymore, what does matter? And how do we how do we live with that? And how do we work with that? And how do we come up with the best solutions so that these things are changeable in the future? Yeah. There's so many layers of complexity to this. It's incredible. Yeah. And then, I mean, the funny thing, though, is that if you start looking at the city through that lens in terms of things that have been added on to change the initial function that a building had, you realize that we already live in that world. You know, when you see window units for air conditioning sticking out of buildings in an incredibly unpicturesque and, and, you know, odd, odd looking way, you know, that's already here. When you look at things like uh, satellite TV dishes for people to tune into, you know, international sports games and that kind of thing, you know, you already see satellite dishes all over the roofs and and walls of of buildings. Um, you know, yep. when, when, when you, when you even look at, um, some r- retrofitted buildings where entire elevator shafts are added on the exterior in particular in, um, some European cities that I visited where old buildings have been retrofit with, with elevators on the outside, you know, you've got this kind of prosthetic elevator that is now part of the building. And I think that if you see that stuff, you begin to realize that there is actually this room for a kind of quarantine layer to get turned on in, in on on top of our cities and to add functionality, mm-hmm. whether it's to um, you know reimagine the the window unit as a kind of cir- uh, circulating air isolation quarantine unit, um, or it's to imagine some sort of external elevator shaft like addition to a residential housing complex that in fact is just a new way in and out for people that might be feeling sick. Um, you know, you start realizing that actually the infrastructure. And people's flexibility for accepting that infrastructure already exists. And I think that architects could probably get over some of the angst of pitching large-scale change if they realize that actually, you know, the city is already kind of covered in jewelry, so to speak. And what I mean by that are these window units and these these satellite dishes and that kind of thing. So just imagine, you know, your own version of that and pitch it and just see what happens and see if you can get these kinds of changes um, implemented and uh, gradually they'll become permanent. But, um, but yeah, I think that that would be one way to look at it. That's interesting to think about. I mean, there's so many kind of levels to that type of customization that happen all over the place. It's so many different levels. I even think about it on the digital level where, you know, the whole topic of like AI, where people don't trust it and they're worried about the implications of, of AI and all of those kind of scary Black Mirror episodes or whatever. But yet, we will type something into Google and take the first hit that comes to us because that's the recommend the top recommendation. Or there's so many examples of that where it's like, you already trust it. What do you mean? You don't, you're not going to trust it. You already do. Yeah, totally. To me, there is definite parallel there with the kind of thing that you're talking about with jewelry on the outside of the building. It's like, it's already there. What do you mean? You don't, you don't want it. Like it, yeah. you've been, you've had it. Yeah. <laughs> there's, I think it's, it's, it is interesting what we choose to observe and what we choose to ignore in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. So building blog and the stuff that you're working on, you know, we've talked a little bit about, um, you know, archaeology, geology, the old part. How does that fit in to all of this kind of stuff with you? I mean, it seems to me like, you know, my, my grandfather was a geologist. Um, he, we, we used to go out to Death Valley almost every year. He lived out there for over 50 years, you know, twice a year, mm. the spring and the fall. And he lived in Northern California, taught up at UC Davis and geology department. But but other than that, he was like doing field trips. And we have seen more of Death Valley hmm. 
than most people ever will. And he, he was responsible for mapping like the whole southern end of Death Valley. Oh, wow. So I've always had this huge love of going out there. And the excuse was geology, but it was more about adventure. And it was more about finding these incredible things that most people don't get to see. And so I kind of, you know, I think that there's something there between you and I, and I would love to hear kind of your take on like, what is the attractiveness there for you? um, And how does that tie into the work that you do? There's so many different ways to to approach that. I mean, I think that on one level, I think one of the things that's interesting about geology and, and plate tectonics as well is just the acknowledgement of structure and the idea that when you're standing on the ground, quote unquote, you know, that's such a simplification of what you're actually standing on. Um, it's not just a surface. It's this massive volumetric space beneath your feet. And it contains structure. It's not just mud. It's not just sand. It's it's this layered, incredibly interesting thing with history. And it formed through processes that are still active and are absolutely huge that sort of boggle the human imagination. And I think if you look at geology that way, it's really a way to look down and take a section of the thing you're standing on and try to understand where that thing came from. And then I think if you start getting involved in the ground, so to speak, you know, obviously this is beginning to touch on things like, well, landscape investigations or the architecture of section or the architecture of the ground itself in terms of how it's stratified. So you begin to already get into a kind of architectural conversation. Um, But then you're also touching on some really interesting philosophical questions about what does it mean to trust the planet we're standing on or that we live on? Um, what does it mean to trust the solidity of the ground that your your house is built on or that your city was founded on? Um, and then, of course, there are these really interesting events like earthquakes or the the slow movement of plate tectonics um, that really kind of challenge the entire idea that we're we have this sort of terrestrial vision, which is that earth is that the ground is solid and then it doesn't move. Um, but when it does move, yeah. you know, we go you move pretty quickly or rather you transition pretty quickly from a terrestrial model to a maritime model, at least in the way that I look at it where suddenly you're talking about waves and movement and buildings are more like ships than they are static objects. And I think that, again, some of that is architectural, but some of that is philosophical. So what does that change in your attitude towards the built environment or towards the things that you trust as solid? And what does it do to your own sense of longevity or, or the, the trust you have for the things around you? And I think that all of those things sort of come out of a, a, a conversation about geology or an interest in geology and that's even before you get into just the sheer aesthetics of it. You know, I mean, I think that uh, as uh, uninteresting as this comment might be, I just think, you know, rocks are unbelievably beautiful. Um, and when you mm-hmm. go into those landscapes, whether they're valleys like Death Valley or the mountains of, you know, the Rockies or the Alps or whatever it might be, and you start to see these amazing mineral forms, you know, that extend for thousands of feet into the air and can, you know, totally dwarf all human cities. Um, there's just something yeah. so spectacular about that. And and also, even that has a history within architecture. Um, you know, if you look at people like John Ruskin, who was documenting glaciers and um, uh, mountain forms as architectonic examples for architects to study, um, you know, I think that there's a long running history of architects being fascinated by geological environments as as um, like lessons for them or 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 examples for them to 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 take on board and to to think through things in terms of yeah, section and, and connection and proximity and all of the things that come up in, in, in a conversation about geology. I think that was probably my first awareness of section hmm. was was Death Valley, oh, wow. right? Because you can go out there and you can you can see it sure. like all over the place, the stratification and the, I mean, that's that's where my, my grandfather was editor at the GSA and it was very much the place that was the epicenter of all that research was, was to talk about plate tectonics was there. Nice. Because like there's just cross sections everywhere where you can see the uplift and the downturns and you can drive through the washes where you can see five different things happening at the same time. And that was the first time where it was like trying to understand that spatial quality is a is a hard that's one way to put it, mm-hmm. right? Of of what's going on underground. Um and then starting to apply that to architecture at a later, much later time, right? It was it was like, oh, I get this. I just, I understood it immediately. And it was because of all of those years as a kid going out and driving around in the Land Cruiser through the washes and over the hills and, 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 you know, him pointing the, 
his hammer that he would use to crack rocks open and, and drawing lines in the sky about, you know, you can see where this was and, and how that went mm. and how, where this goes and why it's like that. And I thought that was always so interesting. So yeah, that that's interesting because I had never thought about it until you just said it right then. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. So I, I was just trying to pull up an article I have here talking about when he was um, hired out there by his contemporary Lauren Wright. And they basically mapped a lot of the, the back then it was the National Monument together. And um, he, Lauren did the North half and my grandfather did the Southern half. Mm. And just a couple of years ago, he, he passed away and we had a, a little ceremony out there and they are in the process of naming a peak oh, after wow. the both of them, two different peaks. So, and they're right next to each other, but Lauren's is the North peak and his is the Southern peak. So hmm. pretty cool. Oh, that's exciting. I mean, it's just, yeah, that's cool. it's fun to kind of bring it all back to uh, together there. So moving into like the other kind of like, I don't know, what, what, what do you call it when you, you're so interested in bunkers and tunnels and yeah. I mean, it's fascinating stuff. Like my kids and I, when we go on vacation, uh, I mean, our whole family, it's like we're, we're looking for ruins. We're constantly on this, this search to like find places that people have previously inhabited or worked in or I just think that that stuff is so fascinating and there's so much like architectural ness to it mm-hmm. um but at the same time it was never thought of as a as a work of architecture it was more like infrastructure totally. you know yeah what is the curiosity there for you because i i i kind of share it but i don't really know how to describe it i mean on one level i'd say that or, or at least as, as of the moment I, I you know i'm not really a claustrophobic person and so being inside these spaces mm-hmm. is in fact really um kind of calming and welcoming i actually enjoy going into under underground spaces that can be sometimes so small you have to crawl through them other times so huge it feels like you've you know discovered a you know almost like an underground basketball court and i think that that spatial quality as you mentioned earlier about about being outdoors in, in death valley i think is just something i i really enjoy i like the sound i like the the calmness of the air i like the the temperature even you know it's a it can be a, a very cool and, and and calming kind of atmosphere but then i also just love conceptually as well that idea especially with tunnels that here is this thing that appears to be separate from another and if you don't go down into the section of the earth, if you don't go down underground, you won't realize that, in fact, there is a connection there. And there's something really interesting and metaphoric and exciting about that, especially when you can realize it physically and go down into that tunnel and pop up in another building. And from, you know, again, the, the, from the view of the surface dweller, that connection seems magical. It seems impossible. It seems like it shouldn't exist. And I think experiencing that is is just something that I that I absolutely love. So you know, a- actually being able to go into tunnels and experience them is something that I like. And then architecturally, I also just think it's fascinating that you have these sort of brute force interventions that take on an unplanned aesthetic that ironically articulates a lot of the beliefs of modern design in the classic capital M sense of modern design. Um, you know, where form follows function, or where you strip a site to, or a space of ornament. And just let it speak for itself for what it is and the materials that go into it. You know, all of these sort of doctrines of, of capital M modern design pop up in infrastructure in a really exciting way. And so, you know, if you really want to see, you know, if you take Adolf Lowe's, for example, if you want to take him to the limit, you know, you wouldn't really just go to a residential house designed by, you know, a, a, a Lowesian architect in Los Angeles or, or Switzerland, you know, take them to you know, a, a tunnel through the Alps or take them into a, a brand new subway system being constructed in China. And you see what it means for form to follow function or for materials to be allowed to articulate themselves and to express, you know, what they actually are, whether it's concrete or steel or, or brickwork. And so in any case, I think just on that level, too, there's something really fascinating architecturally about the spaces that are produced. And so it's it's an experiential thing. It's a metaphoric philosophical thing, but it's also an architectural material thing. I always get fascinated visiting New York and just being in the subway system and daydreaming about everything disappearing around it so that I could just see it. I, I just want to see it in all of its glory, like big picture, because that is so difficult, right? Because it, they dug it out. Like it, it was never there. Mm. And they dug out a, a void to put this thing into it, you know, at the same, like I just the, the incredibly, incredibly conceived mm-hmm. to be able to do that and to weave and do all that stuff under the earth, I think is so incredible. Like my wife daydreams about all the buildings disappearing and just seeing the people floating in the air yeah. everywhere. Right. But I'm, I'm much the opposite. I, I want to go underground and I want to pull everything away and just see all of that incredible maze that 
you know, Rube Goldberg machine that lives underground that's so incredible. Yeah. Cool stuff, man, for sure. Um, it makes me think of um, outside of Barstow in Southern California, there's a a place called Pisgah Crater. And okay. it's like a cinder cone area. And there's a bunch of lava tubes out there. And they're, I, for the most part, all marked via GPS coordinates nowadays. But um, I remember like in college going out there with some buddies and headlamps and cover-ups and just going in with our rock climbing gear because some like you you mentioned there's like some basketball sized basketball court sized caverns underground and then there's other ones where you got to push through with your toes and Mm. they link together like that's what's so incredible about that kind of stuff like on one end of the spectrum you're talking about it from like a man-made perspective and on the other end you're talking about it from a completely natural perspective and there's so many similarities between the two I mean, I'm not saying that like one inspired the other. I don't think that's the case, but it is so interesting to see two different outcomes on two different time scales, and for very different reasons. Like obviously, one's for a purpose, and one one is much less so. But it's so interesting to kind of experience both of those, and I I love that about just the ex- types of experiences that we can have. Super cool. Totally. I was able to tick something off of my bucket list last summer when my wife and I had a chance to go to Cappadocia and, and central Turkey. And, you know, I mean, I've been obsessed with that place since I was a kid. And, you know, if you don't know, or if your listeners don't know what it is, it's basically a, a region um, in central Turkey that uh, goes all the way back into a very deep human history where the ground is soft enough that you can effectively carve through it with just the most basic instruments. So, you know, a knife or even just a sharpened piece of metal. And so you can build these, you know, carve rooms into hillsides, but you can keep on going and turn those rooms into tunnels and then those tunnels into staircases and then those staircases leading onto levels that you carve out. And the whole region is is now, you know, it's kind of archaeological slash subterranean wonderland because they keep finding new entire underground cities, you know, that could have housed literally tens of thousands of people at a time, um, often have six plus underground layers. So it's all subtractive. Exactly. And, wow. you know, to go into those places is just, un, I mean, it, it, it feels like, a you know, it's the kind of place that I, I would, I would only dream exists. And then yeah. also it's, you know, it's, it's Turkey. So it has a different sense of, of health and safety, uh, liability lawsuits that we have in the United States. And so, you know, very tricky places are, are actually still, um, they're not off limits. So, you know, you can go wandering through the landscape on your own and find, you know, ancient churches carved into hillsides or tunnels to go down into, or, you know, just places that it feels like maybe a pigeon has been in there in the last 10 years, but you might be the first person to explore it in, 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 in a decade. And, you know, you get to do, just do things that, uh, yeah, an American theme park version where everyone is afraid of liability, um, you know, wouldn't let you do that. But, um, anyway, that was a dream come true. If you are interested in the underground and never get a chance to go there, I, I would, I would definitely recommend putting it at the, at the top of your list. That's amazing. I'm going to look it up and and find a a link for the show notes for that. Do you have any like personal hacks, something that you do to help yourself kind of perform better, get in the zone, get in the flow that that you really feel like helps you out that that maybe other people could look into? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I guess I'd say maybe two things. Um, one is a is a physical thing. So I'd say that if you are able, I, I personally, for me, um, exercise is a physical exercise is a massive spur toward productivity and, and even just happiness. Um, and so that takes the form of, you know, whether it's running or lifting weights or just simply stretching. You know, getting my heart rate up and feeling physically present, but in a way that mitigates that sense of just feeling down in the doldrums and stuck at a, at a laptop keyboard. Um, you know, you can really feel awake and, and physically present in a way that is, is quite exciting. So if that's something one is able to do, I, I would, I would strongly recommend physical exercise as a kind of preparation for writing. They kind of balance each other out. The sedentariness of one is, is canceled by the activity of the other. And then I guess there's a lot of other sort of aspects of writing that I think I could go into and I'll just focus on one, though, in the interest of time. Um, this doesn't mean that this is the most important one. It's just probably the easiest one to explain. And so I don't mean to overemphasize it by by only referring to it. Um, but I think an interesting exercise that I enjoy, a writing exercise that I enjoy for, you know, cracking open a post on Building Blog or just trying to get my mind into that mode um, is finding something like a newspaper article or a scientific experiment or an anecdote a friend told me. 
Um, but then asking just some really simple questions like, well, w- what if this was the beginning of a movie or could there be a novel set, you know, in, in the world that this, this article discusses? And I think that those very simple questions are, are great ways to just sort of break the ice and get yourself writing where you begin to imagine the, the context around something, you know, this thing you saw in the news or uh, a controversy at a construction site in, in a foreign country, you know, what other circumstances might lead to that? And, you know, trying to imagine it as a, as the plot of a film or the plot of a novel or the start of something, I think uh, the start of a conspiracy or whatever it might be, I think is a exciting way to get the imagination moving and just to, to start writing, even if you then erase all of the, all of the stuff that started that, that particular post. Um, it's just a good way to, to think something, think about something from a different uh, direction. That seems like super appropriate for the kind of work that you do. Mm. <laughs> That's really cool. I mean, just as a creative kind of unblocker, even I could see that being really helpful. That that's pretty cool. Thank you for sharing that. That was awesome. Who who do you listen to? What are you reading right now that that's really um, speaking to you? Um, yeah, I guess I'd say that I I am a definitely uh, I'm a very wide reader, and you know both my wife and I are. If you if you saw our house, it looks like we are just living a giant fire trap because we're just surrounded by by books <laughs> ever, ever, everywhere, and so we're we're both constantly reading. But um, I'd say that to a certain extent. A lot of the work I'm, or the stuff I'm reading right now is being shaped by the quarantine book. And so as we're coming to the end of that, you know, I'm, I'm reading tons of stuff on outbreaks and medical design and the history of hospitals and that kind of thing. But I guess I'd say the, the books that I've read recently that are, that are interesting. Um, one is the one that just came out last week. Uh, it's by a woman named Emily Antis, and it's called The Great Indoors. And it's a look at the interiors of architecture and of the built environment as this kind of emerging ecosystem that humans are adapting themselves for and the health implications mm. of that, you know, the kind of microbes that we're being uh, exposed to, the diseases that might be emerging from being inside too often, also the the cognitive effects of, of, of what it means to be inside architecture all day. And it is a really interesting book in the sense that it also has some anecdotes about how architects could get involved in human health in a more direct way for everything from um, the actual literal design of hospitals to just thinking about the emotional effect that different, um, you know, color choices or material palettes might have on residents. Um, so that's a that's a great book, and uh, I would recommend that. Briefly, another one is this book called Wasteland. Um, it uh, speaks to a whole other aspect of my interests that we didn't have a, a chance to get into, um, but it's about specifically it's about World War One as the origin of modern horror. And so how so much of what we now take for granted as uh, the kind of the tropes of horror, whether it's the, the return of the dead or the sort of cosmic horror of H.P. Lovecraft, um, a lot of this stuff can be traced back to the, to the experience of World War I and trench warfare and the kind of uh, alienating um, experience of, of frontline warfare in, in the early 20th century. So it's, it's interesting. It's, it's imperfect, but it's, a, it's an interesting book if you're interested in, in those kinds of things. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So final, final question, just where can people find out more about you follow along with what you're doing online? Um, obviously we will have a link to building blog, any other place that you're kind of putting stuff out there? Well, I guess I'd say, yeah, building blog is a good place. Although, as I mentioned, I've been really slow this year in terms of posts. So hopefully that will, once I've got this book done and off my plate, that will, that will change. Um, I'm here and there on Twitter, but it's, uh, at Jeff Mayno is my, is my account and you can just link to that, but it's my, my first and last name. Um, and then I guess, yeah, if you want to read about even totally a whole new set of topics that we didn't get a chance to talk about, um, my book, A Burglar's Guide to the City, um, it might be a good place to start just for looking at how architecture can be relevant in topics like law enforcement and crime in a way that perhaps might not be immediately obvious and could be an exciting place to start as well. That's awesome. And I will now, at the very end of the show, uh, apologize for saying your last name incorrectly. I, I assumed <laughs> it. <laughs> so uh, definitely want to put that out there that uh, I, I'm glad you said it because I should have asked in the very beginning. So Jeff may know. Oh, yeah, no worries at all. I'm old enough that you know, no, literally no, there's no one on earth who would look at the spelling of my last name and say it the way my family does. And so know how. <laughs> I, I tend not even to correct people, but um, but I appreciate it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. And hopefully we can do it again sometime. Yeah. Thanks for having me on.
Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.